This episode is brought to you by Seed. Probiotics are most effective when they make it to your colon alive. That's why Seed developed a patented two-in-one capsule that safeguards viability of its DSO-1 daily symbiotic through digestion to deliver the maximum dose to your colon. No refrigeration necessary. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. If you looked at my history, you, you wouldn't find, like I wasn't that person that grew up not wanting to have children. I was a person that grew up wanting to have children that wanted to get pregnant and had like a list of all the names that I was going to name my children. And I don't know what happened in the years that I transitioned, but for whatever reason, um, I ended up pursuing the hysterectomy. So um, in the first six months after detransition, that was what I was processing was the fact that I'm now infertile. Um, I still have ovaries. So like, in in a world where I have thousands and thousands of dollars and then nothing unethical would happen, I could still have a child, but um, it's probably not going to happen. But um, in so in the first six months post detransition, every time I saw a child interacting with a parent, I started crying. Um, I had days where I just sort of went and lay on my bed and cried for a long time. Um, I went, I, I called up my doctor and I told her, you know, I want to, I want to see a fertility clinic. And this was, that was the first time I told her I detransitioned basically was um, basically telling her that I want to get pregnant now. And, you know, I had a surgery that makes me not be able to have pre- be pregnant ever. And um, I don't know. She, she didn't even, she didn't even take that as like, she didn't, I don't know. My, my, I don't think my doctors are ever going to sound sorry, but you know, they didn't, she didn't seem to feel bad about it or in, in any, any way. It was just sort of, oh, okay. You, you would have gotten pregnant if you didn't have a hysterectomy. Okay. And I don't know. They, they, they made it very neutral. Um, but yeah, so the six months after that were really difficult and like, I don't know, Christmas last year, my parents were like taking pictures of like my nieces and nephews and I had to leave the room because I was crying. Cause I was like, there's a part of me being like, I'll never give my nieces and nephews any cousins or, you know, um, my parents will never see me have children or anyway. So Hello. <laughs> how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Good. What um what's your native time zone? Uh EST. Oh, cool. Do you have a fruitful morning? Um I would say that I probably slept through most of it. <laughs> I, I woke up probably around eleven forty five. Did you have a late night? Uh, or did you just get some I time did to relax? Have- a weirdly late night um for weeks i had like a good sleep schedule going and then in the past week i've been awake until four in the morning um probably just because i don't have any work right now but i should have work tomorrow so are you just uh what's it called uh are you just watching all the Battlestar galactica episodes back to back arrested development actually oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, is this your first time through it um 
I've watched like the first five episodes like a bunch of times because my brother was really into Arrested Development and then it just it something never clicked and now this time through I'm enjoying it more so who knows that's a brilliant series a lot of just uh clever wordplay that you don't pick Mm -hmm. up till the second time or till you clue into what what they're playing around with yeah do you have yeah do are you a writer yourself or a comedic uh kind of person i like to think that i'm a writer um like since i was a child i i i I had hyperlexia so i was reading before kindergarten basically so like at like age four i was reading already um and had like a really so i'm told big vocabulary um i would say I, i still have a big vocabulary i just don't use it all so like i know all the words but like when I am speaking, they're not all coming out. So I don't sound smart, I don't think. But um, yeah, so when I was learning to read as a child, there was another part of that that I loved was just like writing little books. So I just staple paper together and and write little books. Um, And now I'm trying to work on my book. So about just sort of like my transition and detransition and sort of all of my feelings about that so i like to think i'm a writer maybe one day it will something will actually come of that it'll actually be something published so i guess we'll find out you just gotta hammer and hammer and hammer and hammer yeah and it's it's hard because like for probably for a week i was i was doing really good probably got ten thousand words in one week and then and then the week after i was just just didn't want to do anything um I mean, I, I guess part of it is probably because it's it's a hard subject to go over. So well, you get burnt out. Yeah, you yeah. get burnt out, and you probably it's probably very difficult to be aware to what extent you're actually processing things while you're putting them on the page. And so uh, periods of exhaustion or disinterest are probably just your subconscious machinery saying, "Hold on, hold on, we gotta reconfigure all these feelings," you know. Yeah, and especially, like, uh, one of the parts that I've already gotten through is, like, early childhood bullying, and I didn't even go into it into, like, extreme detail, but just the, um, just the remembering of, of what sort of went through my head and, like, um, what these kids sort of instilled in me i guess over the years like the what 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 a cbt therapist would call core beliefs basically so like this idea that all these kids think i'm ugly all these kids think that uh i'm gross and disgusting and that um i don't know i'm just easy to make cry um stuff like that just oh and just the idea that i'm unlikable so those are sort of the main core beliefs or you're ugly, you're really gross and disgusting. And also nobody likes you. And that's just going to be your lot in life basically is every, every person that you meet is eventually going to hate you. So um, (laughs) coming, going through that and then 
thinking about where I am in my time of life right now, where I'm trying to like find a partner and settle down and I'm still single and I've been single for several years, four, four years now, four or five years. And um, putting those two things together just suddenly made me really, really depressed. Just the idea of, um, you know, not being attractive to people and people just not going to like me and I'm probably going to be alone forever. Those mm-hmm. sort of feelings. Mm-hmm. Um so that sort of, uh, what's the word? It's, it's put like a blockade up on me trying to finish the book. <laughs> so yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot to shoulder, and uh, and also to remember to be kind to yourself. You know, kind of like be the adult and let yourself be a child again. You know, kind of do both. Swap between those things. Yeah. There's um. There's a lot of, yeah, the adult parts of me talking to child parts of me being like, oh, you know, you might think you're ugly, but also you don't really value conventional beauty. So why do you care anyway? Like that, that sort of thing. Or also, you know, um, I guess uh, a lot of it is, is me being worried about being unlikable and then I guess comparing that to, you know, every time I've been out in the world, there aren't really that many people who don't like me. So really it's, it's sort of just trying to find like those rational parts of you, I guess, Mm -hmm. that you get in as, as an adult. Perspective. Yeah. When you were a kid, uh, how did you end up uh, coping to become likable in school? Did you become the class clown? Did you get involved in cliques? Did you isolate yourself and just it was isolating yeah so instead of trying uh no it was all learned helplessness so basically um over the years i realized that nothing that i was doing was really changing their minds so i just sort of um just became sort of like a shell of myself i guess so like um i had like one one friend through some of those years in my school i switched schools in like grade three so i had friends up to that point and then when i switched i was in the same school as people that bullied me in my neighborhood so it sort of set the tone i guess and um i did make a friend later on in in school but um even that friend ended up being a bully later on Hmm. so like by the time i was uh preteen so age 12, 13, I just didn't have any friends. And my whole um, process was basically just like, let's get through elementary school. And as soon as I'm in high school, I'll be around hundreds of people instead of the same 30 kids I've been with for the last five, six years. So so were you um, in a, yeah. a rural, uh, provincial uh, town when you were in uh, elementary school? Yeah, it was rural enough. Uh, like it was, it wasn't urban by any any means. But like, um, it, it's not so much that there there were farms in the town, but it wasn't like a farming town. But like you know, it was a population of three thousand, so it was pretty small. Yeah, and then yeah. Uh, high school was like kind of a regional high school. You all yeah. yeah. So I actually I all went I also went to Catholic schools my oh. entire school. Oh, so, the in, the whole time. Not in like post secondary, but uh, all the way from like kindergarten to grade twelve was all Catholic school. Okay. So um, the only Catholic high school was a couple of cities, a couple of towns away 
So that's how far did you have to travel? 45 minutes. I guess that's not too bad. It it wasn't terrible, except for the fact that like most of the bullying that happened to me happened on the bus. So even switching to when I went to high school, it was like, okay, I got away from all these kids that make fun of me, but also I have to deal with them 45 minutes a day, twice a day. So an hour and a half every day. But most of them kind of grew up by that time and me not paying attention to them, I think sort of made it not so fun for them to bully me anymore. So it wasn't as bad, but still Mm -hmm. it was it was tough, a tough period of time. How did Catholicism inform you? Did it have much of an My influence? Life? Yeah. Um, was it kind of just there, just a structure? Did it, uh, did it something that you rebelled against or something that you uh, found relief through? Or It was flourishing? probably something I rebelled against for sure. So like I was that kid in, in grade eight that we had... Um, they must have been like youth group people. So it was like older teenagers that were like cool Christians that came to the school to like talk. And I was the one there being like, you know, if, if miracles exist, why don't they exist today? Like that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that kind of weird person that was just sort of like, I'm not sure I agree with you, but, and then everyone else was just sort of like, mm. but um, um, I don't know. I, th- I think around that age is when, I was on the internet really young for a millennial. (laughs) So um, I'm 34, but I was really, really obsessed with the internet by the time I was 10. So like mid nineties, 1998. Um, And um, so what was the internet back then? Were you on Usenet or forums or what? So I was on IRC, internet relay chat. Um, I was on MSN messenger I was on AOL Instant Messenger, ICQ, so I had all of those. So Bef- could you just yeah. describe that? I can't really remember what those are like. So <laughs> it, it sounds like a, like a kind of some sort of Twitter, or is it a forum, or chat rooms, or how does how does uh, the network work back then? So they're all different. IRC is more like a chat room. It's just sort of uh, all text chat. Um, that was more for like. I would say like 90% of the people on it were like all nerdy guys. Um, and w- was it divided into subjects, topics? Yeah. So they all had different servers. It's almost like discord actually. Okay. So they all had different servers and um, you, you kind of just had to know where the channels were there. There was like a way to like search for channels and, and choose one. Um, but back then I was mostly just role-playing. So I was like pretending to be a wolf or pretending to be a horse. Usually, uh, that was my thing when I was 10 years old was just like, it was like writing stories with other people. Right. So, okay. Okay. Interesting. And was there, uh, is it like within like some sort of like people who are pretending that you're on a farm? Was there like a, like kind of a domain or just everybody just started playing these characters? Was there a world that you guys created together? So on IRC, it was more like sort of open, I think. And then there were also message boards that were basically, you know, you post a message and then wait for someone to like use their character and post to like a paragraph in response sort of thing. And those that were on websites had more of like a structure to it where it was, you know, there you're playing a wolf in a wolf pack. Um, 
And then there's the, the alpha female and the alpha male, and then the beta female and the ma- beta male that are just right below them. And there's all the sort of hierarchy and structure. And, you know, you go to this different message board when you want to mate and have babies. <laughs> wow. Okay. But um, it, it wasn't very detailed, but like, um, yeah, it was, it was just sort of these games that people made so that you could, have a structure of writing stories which i guess is kind of like D, but like in written form mm-hmm. but also for like for animals and this was like teenage girls mostly almost entirely teenage girls i think how do you feel great on vacation like really good easy you go to aruba you'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water you'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great, you'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. But that so, was my thing in like when I was 10, 10 to 12. Okay. Did you, thinking back on that, was there any sort of uh, adult supervision or the lack of that leading to grooming kind of stuff. Were you aware of that? Yeah. Um, I didn't have a lot of supervision online. Um, although my parents were cautious for sure, but um, I, I was that sort of person that I, I developed a really strong addiction really early. So I would be online you know, just sort of chatting or role-playing or whatever until I had bedtime and then I would go to bed. And then after my parents would fall asleep, I would get up and go back on the computer. We only had the one computer. So in the living room, basically mm-hmm. in, in the middle of everywhere. And then I would be on again until, you know, two in the morning and then go to sleep. But so during those times, there were no um, people supervising Um that the one friend that I mentioned before, she was sort of the one that got me into areas of the internet that I wouldn't have gone to otherwise. So just like chatting with older boys who said said they were older boys, might have been men, who knows. Um, so that's, I think that's where you're sort of going with the, the grooming and the potential for just like other people on there. Um, and so those were people that were, I guess, trying to have cyber sex with me as and I was always telling the truth about my age. So like looking back on it, that's, it's very, very uncomfortable to think of the fact that even if they weren't lying, there would be like 16 year old boys hitting on 11 year old girls. It's a little weird. So, um, no, that happened as well, but I think there was a part of me that just wasn't, I was just not into it the way that like my friend was so like I for example I had like one chat with this guy that was clearly interested in me and then as the chat sort of went on further and further there was a part of me going I don't like this and uh, I'm gonna pretend that my internet has um, disconnected now (laughs) and basically Mm -hmm. just left so yeah and where'd you go on from from that past year when when you started becoming a teenager live journal live journal so is this more diary based stuff rather than pretending to be an animal you're uh... yes (laughs) sorry just the the pretending to be an animal just 
I, I know that's what it is, but like just hearing someone say it like that is funny. Um, but um, yeah, no, it was more diary stuff by that age. So in in high school, age 13, 14, then I was probably on live journal by that time. Um, and there were less role playing and more like just talking to people. And like I, my first boyfriend I met online um, on one of these chat rooms uh, and he was four years older than me. So he was, he had just turned 18 when we met and I was 14. And um, so that's sort of where it went. Um, we, me and that, that boyfriend met a couple times in person with my parents sort of just sort of behind every single corner, making sure nothing was happening hmm. and things did happen anyway, but you know, so that's, that's sort of where it went, I guess. It's sort of diary and. Is it, yeah. thinking back on that, are you inventing yourself, exploring yourself? What kind of uh, parameters of your personality are starting to become awake and alive through this live journal process mm. questioning emotions are you actually like talking about your real feelings or are you kind of inventing a new persona or you know it's it's a little bit of both um because i look back on it and e even for example like the the boyfriend that i just mentioned in that live journal i would say things about how you know i enjoyed being intimate with him or whatever and that you know i couldn't wait to do it again or whatever that but that actually wasn't true. <laughs> like I didn't enjoy it um, for whatever reason, but I like, I didn't like it, but I pretended, I pretended to like it. So there were a lot of, there was some pretending for sure, trying to seem like I was older than I was or um, understood more than I understood that sort of thing. But there was also a lot of, um, when I think about those live journal entries, there are some of them that are just really embarrassing because, you know, I was a 15 year old girl that was incredibly angry and, hmm. um, yeah. So it was, it's really just like, I think it was a little bit of both. Some of it was pretending and sort of creating a persona. And then another part of it was just sort of venting, I guess. Mm -hmm. What happened to all that writing? Did it just disappear one day? AOL came along and shut it down. I wonder where all these archives are. Not just of you um, specifically, but like this seems like there's a huge mass of human data just sitting somewhere gone. I mean, LiveJournal's still running. I have all my LiveJournal entries. Um, like I, I really obsessively archive everything I've ever written. So I have all of that. Um, yeah. Um, what I would like is like all the pictures that I used to have online. I can't find any of those anymore. The writing was a lot easier to find, hmm. but um, yeah, no. And I also think of like my Tumblr, even though Tumblr is still running, um, just sort of like that entire thing is um, what's the word it's uh, let's say archive again. It's an archive of like my history, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. of just sort of even the process that I went through and I have sort of a saved version of it. And if you start going back far enough, then, you know, you start finding all of the, the social justice warrior posts. So it's, it's interesting to look back on 
because I, uh, I don't know, a few months ago, I, I went not too far back, but I found like an argument between me and someone else where now I would look back on it and be like, actually, they were right the whole time. And I was just mean and hmm. not willing to, to listen to them. So, so this is interesting. Um, just like as a test to, or a case study, uh, not to denigrate your humanity or anything, but it's just interesting <laughs> that you were development as a human being like maps onto a very particular point in history. And then all these different mediums or websites or forums and styles of communication are changing and you're changing with them. So you're going from, let's say, uh, role-playing as, uh, animals to then being a teenage girl, like writing a diary, which is kind of something that we would think of as stereotypical female thing to do, but it's exposed to the world. And then you're meeting people through that. And then the Tumblr thing starts happening. And then at some point, this social justice thing, uh, is presented to you. So you go from expressing yourself. What was it that introduced you to, you know, that ideology or, uh, being an activist or having an opinion about the world going from, you know, expressing your opinion to now promoting an ideology. How did that, um, lock onto you? It's a good question. Um, and I think even some of it was still on live journal because live journal had all those, you had your own diary, but they also had communities. So it was like, it was almost like a communal live journal. So, everyone can post entries to the same journal kind of thing. So that was sort of also like the precursor to getting on Tumblr. And there were communities in there where there were a lot of people that were very, very social justice minded. And I feel like that's where it really started. And um, I, I think the reason it started is I went from high school to um, immediately moving in with a boyfriend, not the one I've mentioned, but a different one. And, um, so I left high school, immediately moved in with him. I didn't go to university right away. Um, and I had that relationship, which was emotionally abusive. It was very, very controlling. Um, I think he's just not, he was a very insecure person. Um, and coming out of that relationship, I felt like, there was a lot of identity searching at that time after coming out of the relationship. So you're what, 19 or 20 or so? Yeah, about 20. Um, and uh, in, in sort of coming out of that relationship, like one of the first things I looked up was um, asexuality. So um, as I mentioned, it was the same with this new boyfriend as, as it was with the other boyfriend is where I didn't really enjoy having sex and I didn't know why I didn't enjoy it. So that sort of came, that came to be my answer at that time. I don't know if it's still an answer. I don't, I don't know if there's enough known about asexuality to know if it's like an actual orientation or if it's just a side effect of me, um, being autistic and being depressed and etc. Who knows? But at any rate, that's where I ended up going, just sort of looking for that identity because there was a part of me that knew that something was wrong here, but I couldn't really figure out what it was. It didn't really seem like I didn't feel like I was like all this, all the other straight girls that I knew, I guess. And I don't, I wouldn't call myself straight now. But anyway, um, that's where I first ended up on that message board. 
And um, that's probably, that's where I heard about um, gender identity for the first time. So um, I think that sort of, sort of got me onto it where I started thinking about it. And then it started showing up everywhere else. It started showing up in live journals, started showing up on Tumblr. This was 2008, 2009, I think. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. So, um... And how did, yeah. what was attractive or how did uh, gender identity help you cope or deal or fit yourself into the world? Was it convenient in a way? Yeah. Um, I guess I thought about sort of my entire life when I first came to the idea of gender identity. I thought about my entire life in like retrospect to sort of comparing everything I'd been through to this idea that you could be um, another gender, even if your body was male or female, so you could be something else. And I guess when I looked through it, there was um, like, when I looked through my past there, I just felt like there was all of these, um, I don't want to say symptoms, but um I guess, traits that I thought would be um, associated with the opposite sex. So, like, outside of all of this internet stuff that I was into, I was into, like, video games, and I wasn't into things that were, like, considered to be typically feminine. So I wasn't, uh, I don't know, I had friends that were into dance, and I took dance classes, but I was very, very bad at it, very ungraceful. So I I, I dropped out of dance classes. and um, I don't know, I, I maybe that other part where people thought I was gross because I, I maybe I thought that meant that I was unfeminine or something like that. And um, I really got along with my brother really well because we all had we, we had interests in the exact same things all the time. So that made it seem like there was more masculinity in me or something like that. And even in high school, I once joked that like, I would like, I think what I said was something like I would get a sex change if it didn't cost so much money, blah, blah, blah. And it's it's horrible irony now, but um, at any rate, uh, I would think about things like that. And the fact that, you know, I, I came up with like a male alter ego in that same sort of thing where I named this male alter ego of me and, um, I don't know, dressed more masculine and like put my hair up in like a backwards baseball cap and was like, look, I I look, I'm passing as a boy or something like that. Like there was one instance of when I did that in high school, I guess, um, in the privacy of my own home. And how did it make you feel? Um, that's a good question. Like when I looked in the mirror, when I, when I did that, there was sort of, um, it was weird. It was sort of a weird feeling because I was looking at myself and it wasn't me, but it was me. And I, I think that's really just sort of a feeling that's continued with me throughout transition is just sort of seeing 
versions of myself that are me, but they're not me. So, yeah. Um, You said it felt weird. It sounds like there's some sort of dissonance there, but is there an elation or something positive there? Do you feel like I can, I I can deal with the world better if I'm uh, looked at this way, if I see myself this way or something like that? Yeah. So when I did that in high school, I don't think that there was any feeling like that. Like I didn't, I didn't take it any further than just looking at myself in the mirror. And then when I did it again, I did sort of that same thing of, you know, trying to pass in the mirror as a 21 year old or whatever. Um, Then I liked that more. I don't know. There was a feeling that, I don't know. To be honest, like um, this, this is a question that I can't really answer for some reason. Because um, I, I feel like everyone else is saying that you know when when they passed, they felt some kind of gender euphoria to some degree, and I'm sure I did. But for whatever reason, I can't I can't access those feelings now hmm. to remember what it's what it felt like at that time. Um, I mean, I can, I, I know why I ended up doing it. And a lot of it was, so for example, um, right after I cut my hair. So um, shortly after I decided I was going to transition, I cut my hair. And um, I think this was, I remember I was wearing a big coat, but anyway, um, I was walking home one day in, this was in downtown Toronto, sort of uptown Toronto, but um, I was walking home. It was after midnight. Um, a guy in a taxi pulled over and he was in a business suit and got out and was like, Hey, do you want to ride home? It's so cold out, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, any other young girl approached at that time of night would be like, um, no, I will definitely not do that. And for whatever reason, I did get in that car, which is a bad idea. Um, and it was only like, I only lived around the corner and, fortunately that's what happened is i got driven around the corner and i guess part of me was like oh he's in a taxi cab the this can't go wrong there's a taxi driver in there the taxi driver could have been in cahoots with him i didn't know that but anyway um on that drive home he asked me a whole host of very uncomfortable questions mm-hmm. about um but first he asked me if i wanted to go party with him and i said no <laughs> And then he looked very confused. I, I guess that if you get into a cab with someone, then they think that, you know, you're intending to have sex with them, I guess, because that's what he said. You, you don't want to have sex with me. And I was like, ah, no. And then asked me all these questions about whether I was a lesbian. And I said I was asexual because I apparently can't keep my mouth shut. So then he started asking me if I masturbate and et cetera, et cetera. So like this was right after I was decided that I was going to transition. And right after that happens, this happens, this being targeted by someone who could still tell that I was female, even though I had short hair and was wearing a big poofy jacket. And I think, I think it was one of those things that really pushed it forward. This idea that maybe if I pass as a guy, then these people, these, these guys aren't going to come bother me sort of thing. So I, I do think that sort of played into it for sure. Hmm. Um, And like, it's probably not um, a coincidence that I moved out from, you know, I I lived with my boyfriend and then I moved in with my parents and then I moved to Toronto 
and transitioned. That's probably not a coincidence. It's probably, you know, I was in this place with so many people all the time and being perceived all the time. And the idea of being perceived as something else where I would be left alone was very, very uh, enticing. Hmm. So, yeah. There's this uh, kind of meme or trope that's been floating around for several years about the girls who dye their hair bright. Um, and it, there's just some sort of interpretation of it. I don't think it really holds water, but it's just kind of an interesting way of looking at the college girls that dye their hair in nature whenever certain animals have bright hair. It's a warning sign uh, that they're dangerous, they're poisonous, right? You're also using that too as like a defense mechanism to to like to camouflage yourself. Like if you become male, you become neutral to the world. You you don't get bothered. You you're you're separate from attention that you don't want. Mm. Exactly, yeah. Um I think it's interesting too because after I stopped because I I was have this weird story where I identified as trans for 10 years, but I stopped taking testosterone about five or six years in. So I continued on for about four or five years before detransitioning. Um, even though I, I think some people would have said I detransitioned earlier, but I wouldn't have said that. I, I, I think that there's a sort of a, um, there's a mindset shift that has to go along with it. But what I was going to say is that after, um, after I stopped taking testosterone is when I started dyeing my hair fun colors <laughs> so it was almost sort of that same thing. And I would have described it as, um, I would have described it as me being like, I'm different. I'm weird. And I'm not ashamed of being weird. And I'm going to show you that I'm weird by having weird colored hair or a weird haircut. Or like, you know, I had an asymmetrical haircut for four or five years, that kind of thing. So at some point you didn't mind the attention. It sounds like I, you had like yeah. self-confidence at, at some point. It, that is sort of what it sounds like, doesn't it? It's There's a part of it that was like, oh, yeah, I don't care about the attention. Um, you can see me. You can see that I'm weird, whatever. And, you know, to not be upset by, you know, people making weird comments about me having parrot-colored hair or whatever. <laughs> um, which is weird at the same time for me to think about. Because I, I don't see myself as someone that would invite attention. So that is strange. But, um, hmm. yeah. So you're in your 20s. You decide to transition. Um, how did that decision come about? And then what steps were available to you at the time? What hoops did you have to jump through? Okay. Um, to access the the medical stuff, it sounds like you went through a social transition uh, on your own, or did you have? Uh, were you involved in a gender clinic, or have any sort of psychological uh, psychological help or uh, psychiatrist? No. <laughs> so um, I did in the year before I decided I was going to transition. So I transitioned in 2010 medically. In 20 sorry, in 2009. Um, I was seeing a therapist at that time. It wasn't for gender. It was for just general depression and anxiety. Um, and I saw her. And then somewhere at the end of 2009, 
I stopped sort of questioning gender and was like, before that point, I would have identified as like gender queer. So like the precursor to non-binary, I guess. Um, and then at some point I was like, yeah, I'm going to go through the medical transition part. And um, in order to get to that part, I did, I was in a trans support group. So it was um, specifically for people that were thinking about transitioning and didn't know if they were going to yet. Um, and, you know, I, until a couple of years ago, I would have said that group was helpful. And now I would have said that that group just sort of, it sucked me in. It was, it didn't, you know, what it should have done was give you all of the information, including what might go wrong. It didn't really give you what might go wrong. It was a lot of sort of downplaying. It was, I got the 1% statistic, only 1% of people regret surgery, blah, blah, blah. Um, they don't, they don't tell you that the only, the 1% that regrets surgery, they've already filtered out all of the people they think might regret. Like that's, that's what people were, they were doing back then is they were filtering out everyone who might regret surgery before, Wait, before asking them, they just wouldn't ask the people or no, I mean like, um, for people who have gender reassignment surgery, in order to get to that surgery stage, there was all this gatekeeping. So all of the gatekeeping was already doing the work of filtering out all of the people who might have regretted surgery. So, you know, if, if back then they had what we have now, which is moving towards sort of like this informed consent model, then they would have had a much higher rate of regret because all of those people that they filtered out would have been included and they would have all regretted it. Okay, just so, to yeah. just make sure that I have this because this is kind of absurd, like how it's happened. So, yeah, the one percent statistic is used to uh, upend the gatekeeping because only one percent regret this, so we don't need all this gatekeeping. When the gatekeeping is what it was keeping that, if if the stats are correct or accurate, to one percent. So then it's uh, they completely destroys the model of that one percent because you've used that one percent to revise every other process to that. Okay. Yeah. So no, it's it is ridiculous. It's it's ridiculous in that only one percent regret it. So let's open it up to everyone, but only one percent regretted it because it was closed to people in the first place. So I don't know. It's it's a very weird way of looking at it. First mm -hmm. of all, but even that one percent, I don't think is correct. Just because, um, and I've, I've had two ideas sort of presented to me into why people might not, um, why people might be lost to follow up. And one of them is that, you know, especially um, a decade ago, people would transition and then they would just sort of, um, they would sort of disappear into, I don't know, their everyday life. They didn't want to be part of like the transsexual community anymore. They just wanted to like live their lives. So that was one option is that they were lost to follow up because they didn't want anything to do with being trans anymore. They just wanted to live their lives. But obviously the other lost to follow up is people who regretted it and don't want anything to do with it anymore. Mm -hmm. So those are the two options of, you know, that whole, because I mean, that's the, the thing with those, um, studies is that even though there's only 1% regret, there's also like 20 to 30% regret. 
lost a follow-up. Okay. So it could have been, it could be 20 to 30% regretted it. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to say. So when you decided that medical transition was for you, um, what was presented to you? Oh, one, one more question actually about the trans support group. What was the makeup, the age range and uh, the sex uh, makeup of the group? Was it evenly well, split males, females? Was it young, old? When I was there, I would say it was mostly evenly split males and females. Okay. Um, Almost everyone there identified sort of as a binary. So either they identified as a trans man or a trans woman. There were a couple people there that identified as like either genderqueer or non-binary. Um, the age range, most of them were young. Uh, within, I would say within 10 to 15 years of me. So 20s 30s and there might have been like one or two people that were in their 40s but i think most of them were younger um but what happened with that is that um the two people that ran the group were both transgender themselves um had been they had transitioned years and years before um and they were both therapists uh one of them one day they said that they had like they had a connection with a clinic that um was looking for, um, they wanted transgender patients for um, their resident doctors to get like, um, what's the word, experience. They wanted experience with trans healthcare basically. So um, they were going to refer one female person, one male person to this clinic. And that's how I got into that clinic, basically. And it's not, it wasn't a gender clinic, just to be clear. It was like a regular general practitioner that had connections with this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Um, Is that called residency? Group. So you were you were kind of volunteered for or volunteered yourself to be like um, a part of somebody's residency to get experience as a student or basically yeah. So like the the doctor was didn't have that experience, got that experience, and then after she wasn't there for very long so that clinic and continued to be the place that i went for healthcare until technically i'm still with the doctor that i was last with i just moved so i don't have a new doctor yet but anyway um yeah so she eventually left and then when she left then the doctor that was supervising her became my doctor basically mm-hmm. So, yeah, I got referred there, and then after three appointments, they put me on testosterone. Uh, does the cocktail include uh, estrogen blockers? I, I always forget. I should have this memorized by now. I know males need the testosterone blocked, and then estrogen. Females just need the testosterone because the magic just, yeah. of testosterone just bulldozes the estrogen, right? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. yeah. Was that um, something else? What was it like to be on the man drug? Um, from what I've heard from everyone else, I 
I almost had like a completely different experience to everyone else. Just like, for example, hearing that, you know, people who go on women who go on testosterone have like a really, really, um, what's the word? <laughs> their, their libido shoots up basically. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that. So like, remember I said before about the whole asexual thing and me thinking, mm, uh, I, I don't know what causes this. And I think there was a part of me that was hoping that going on testosterone would make me not be asexual. I think there was a, there was a part of me that hoped that, that it would get, if Unleash not make me, dog. Yeah, if not make, not make me asexual, make me willing to want to have sex with people. Mm-hmm. And uh, that just didn't really happen. I did explore a lot in that first year or so, but um it never became something that I was just like actively interested in. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Beyond that, being on the man drug, it made me, um, it gave me a lot of acne. Okay. That was the worst part was that I had really, really bad acne. It was one of the reasons that I went off early. Okay. Because I had dealt with acne through my entire um teenage years and then suddenly to be put on a drug that was now giving me acne again it was uh Hmm. it wasn't good for my self-esteem so how about emotionally did your emotions change did your energy levels change emotionally yes so instead of i was angry instead of sad most of the time um before i was on testosterone i would say that i probably cried every single day And then when I was actually, I mean, I went on antidepressants before I went on testosterone and that made me stop crying. But um, the testosterone definitely also, you just can't cry. I don't know why, but (laughs) I wasn't able to cry when I was on it at all. Um, How did you um, process emotions? Did you just... Did I process them? them? (laughs) Yeah, or just not process them, yeah. Did you have no Uh, need to expunge that, that might have been it um i kept writing so i was still writing like journal entries i have journal entries from when i was on testosterone and just starting and even going off i mean i have writing all the way back years do, from now do you recall but... how your voice changed like your writing voice i mean uh changed like your interests your topics how you framed yourself did that kind of go through a transition um when i transitioned yeah when you were on testosterone did your way of thinking change and your way of expressing yourself i never thought about that um i don't know um honestly i i'm not sure (laughs) i haven't looked into it enough we'll have to get a grad student to do a textual analysis of your uh literary transition I'm I would sure be down for that, to be honest. Going on there. <laughs> I do know that, like, the way I, I write changed a lot in the last years that I was transitioning, because in those last years, um, in 2017, I got diagnosed with um, autism spectrum disorder and ADHD and told that I had... Um, symptoms of borderline personality disorder, symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, stuff like that. 
Hmm. And is this all from one source, one uh, diagnosis, one? Yeah, it was one oh. psychoeducational assessment. They did six to eight hours of testing, all of just just the whole thing, basically. So it was like a twenty-five page assessment. And why did you take it? Just because uh, you were frustrated with something? Yeah, school specifically. Um, okay. So, like, if you remember, I said I had hyperlexia when I was a child, but. Um, and that meant that I was doing actually really well for like the first, I don't know, few years of school. Cause people would be like, Oh, you're so smart. You can spell so well, you can yeah. read so well, you can write so well, et cetera, et cetera. So during those years I was doing really, really well. And, and then as things got more and more complicated, I feel like I just wasn't keeping up with everyone as well. And also, as we got into those years, I was getting more depressed and I didn't want to do homework and I didn't want to focus and all of those things. So that was something that happened throughout my life. But in university, I was having such a hard time um, with certain classes. And, you know, there were some classes that I was doing really well. I got an A plus in like a semantics class that was like third year and it was a really tough class. And I was shocked that I got an A plus. And then there were other classes that I was failing and I couldn't figure out why I was just confused as to why I'm, I'm supposed to be, I was told my whole life that I'm smart. You know, if you're so smart, then, you know, what the heck's going on? So mm -hmm. what that did was I ended up going for the psychoeducational assessment to be like, okay, someone told me that I sounded like their friends that have ADHD, which I didn't take as an insult. I took that as a, oh, maybe I have ADHD. So um, that's why I went. And when I was there, they also told me I had was met all the diagnostic criteria for autism. And the years after that became very much sort of processing those disabilities and realizing that I grew up with those disabilities and the reason that I wasn't fitting in was because I was autistic, because I was missing all these social skills, um, because, you know, there were all of these things that I could be doing to fit in, but I didn't know I should be doing it to fit mm -hmm. in because I there was a part of me that was very, I should get to be myself and people should accept me for who I am. But as it turns out, you know, kids don't really think that way. That's more of, a, I do think more adults think that way. They think, oh, you can be who you're, yourself and you know, we're not going to make fun of you. It's more of an adult sort of thing. Not everyone's like that. But um, at any rate, all of that processing happened. Um, I started doing um, autism uh, activism. Oh. So shortly after I was diagnosed, a couple of years after I started getting involved in like the autistic community. Okay. Okay. And um, those were the years that my, I think my writing changed the most because um, I was starting to recognize um, abusive behavior in group dynamics, especially in activism. And part of that was I started taking I took a critical thinking class, which I uh -oh. should have done much, much sooner. Or not so, at all. <laughs> <Like either. sighs> well, it was, it was, it was okay. Cause it was just teaching you like the principles of argument. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, 
I'm just saying, if you don't want to have a rude awakening, just steer clear right. of critical thinking, right? Just stay right. in your bubble. It, that was the rude awakening for me was realizing that a lot of my arguments didn't make sense. Um, if you trace them back to like the premises, you would notice that the, the premise just doesn't make sense. So the big one for, um, for the trans rights movement is this idea that gender identity exists. But if you go all the way back to this premise that gender identity exists, what's the evidence for it? And so that's sort of where my arguments are. All of my arguments in detransition advocacy are now is there's no evidence for this. So why are we affirming something that there's no evidence for? The, I mean, there there is evidence, quote unquote, but the evidence is all anecdotal, um, anecdotal things from trans-identified adults. It's um, this claim that they have twin studies where twin identical twins are more likely to transition than fraternal twins, apparently. Hmm. Um, That's got to be a marginalized group within the marginalized group. It's, I've never met a trans twin before. I have, actually. Okay. And both of them transitioned. So it was okay. weirdly um, accurate to me. But like at the same time, they, they, this isn't proof that they have gender identity that's different than their body. It's proof that maybe people can be predisposed to having dysphoria. Does not necessarily mean that they're literally, you know, a male in a female body or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, that's that's when the writing changed, and I became very, um, it sort of like a, a I would say logical. Um, the reason I'm um, hesitating is that I think that I'm being logical, but like, I'm sure there are people that are, are going to tell me that I'm not being logical on certain things. And, you know, one of the arguments that I had with a friend after detransitioning, he told me that I'd been radicalized, even though I think that I was seeing things more logically, he thought that I was being radicalized. And I guess it's different depending on what you personally believe, but yeah. Yeah. In those years, I, 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 um, the the autistic activism community was very very they're like a microcosm of social justice and they're probably i'm gonna say it's probably the worst it was worse than trans activism they're very very everybody is very emotionally reactive everyone's very angry everybody's very touchy um you know they all have developmental disabilities so it makes sense but um i i think a lot of people who have autism and have ADHD, et cetera, also grow up to have personality disorders if they have a lot of trauma in their lives or if they have a lot of hmm. well, it, instability. It could be the case that for whatever reason, activism is uniquely adept at socially processing trauma, anxiety, and it invites um, the expression of things that mask trauma or mask crises and allows the expression of them. And it justifies the expression of frustration with the world. And yet it doesn't, it can be the case if that is true, that it doesn't actually provide redemption or healing. It just provides the explosion or the agitation to express, but it doesn't like we see with, 
woke dogma or social justice ideology, you have the original sin, you don't have the redemption. Within activism, you have the first part of therapy, which is getting it all out, but you don't have resolution. It's not built into it to have a resolution because you have to change the world and save the world. So there's not that. It invites the, the personal going into the universal, but it doesn't complete the circuit by... I just, I see that a lot. And within autism uh, communities, uh, autism activism, whenever I brushed across it, I've seen like, whoa, this is like steroid, social justice on steroid, the policing of language, Mm -hmm. the interpersonal dynamics. And even you'll, you'll, you'll run afoul of them by, by saying a phrase wrong. And then they'll say, no, this is how you're supposed to say it's a person with autism. And then they'll, autistically start arguing with each other about these words when you're like, you guys aren't actually making a point now. You're just expressing things. And so it's really difficult to, um, to help those people to, to make, um, uh, informed, uh, communications and rhetoric and also ground themselves in that, especially in the disembodied realm of the internet and internet activism turns that even, uh, up, the more because it's not really grounded you know it's more about clanging the pots than washing the dishes um so it's really interesting uh, i just wanted to say all that because i'm thinking a lot about activism that's my main work and then also with autism um and its intersection with gender ideology so having you or speaking with you you've gone through that you've been involved in that now i really uh, appreciate that you said that now you are in uh engaged in detrans advocacy it's a very small little linguistic change but it advocacy rather than activism it it just it it reorients the the work that you're trying to accomplish as in you're raising awareness you're trying to provide people help rather than change the system and get involved in you know changing the structural system which is where a lot of activism runs afoul. I'm sorry to ramble. I just had a no, lot. Okay. I was just really, I'm just excited to be able to speak with you about this because I've been thinking about it uh, for a while. No, oh, and it's it's good. And you you make the point that I came to is that sort of same thing in activism and even, even in autistic activism. Um, the whole... Their, their end goal is revolution, basically. They need a revolution. And if the revolution doesn't happen, then they're still oppressed sort of thing. And I found being in autistic advocacy, there are they are probably the people who are the least likely to work with people and make compromise. Autistic people will not make a compromise with you. So, uh, for example, um, there was... Um, it was a, a feature film of some kind that was being shown somewhere in Toronto or in in Ontario, the province where I live. And um, it was a good film. I had seen the film. I thought it was a good example of, um, you know, good representation of, of what um, living with autism looks like, as particularly for like non-speaking autistic people who don't get a lot of representation. And um, that film was being, the, the showing of the film was being sponsored by two different groups. One of them was an autism, like self, self-advocacy is what they call it. It's like, so it's um, autistic people themselves rather than parents okay. of autistic people. Um, one of them was a self-advocacy group, advocacy group. And the other one was, I think, 
parent and professional run. So run by autism professionals and and parents Mm -hmm. and the self-advocacy group dropped out basically. So even though this movie was a really good movie that they agreed with, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be stand next to a group that didn't agree with everything that they agreed with basically. And I think that um, it was one of the reasons I left is because I kept sort of begging people you know, we need to like compromise with these people. We need to sort of work with them. We need to stop treating them like they're horribly um, awful people, like um, heretics, apostates. They'll they'll call anyone who's doing behavioral therapy a child abuser, and you can't speak to people that way and then expect them to listen to you. So, What's behavioral um, therapy, and why is that problematic? So, they're the main therapy for autistic children especially if they're non-speaking um, is you, they have a certain type of therapy called behavioral therapy, applied behavioral analysis. And in some places they're doing this therapy 40 hours a week, which is full time for a two-year-old. Um, and, you know, there's, I, there's way too much to say about it that okay. I'm not going to get into all of it okay. now, but uh, a lot of it involves not a lot of it. They are trying to change it, trying to make it more modern these days, but traditionally it involved a lot of um, aversives to get them to stop doing things. It's it's very much, um, hmm. oh, what is it called? It's like Skinner? positive, re- positive reinforcement. Yeah, it's very okay. Skinner. It's positive reinforcement. It's like, you know, if you do this, do this right, you get an M&M. If you do this wrong, they're, they're trying to move away from aversives, but it used to be, um, you know, you lose a privilege. You lose a privilege. Back then, it was like you get spanked. Even oh, far okay. enough back, you would get, you know, they would get spanked or be forced to say in a certain area. It was a, a lot of, um, it's a lot of control over the child, basically. Yeah. So that's yeah. why they think it's abusive. Is it's a lot of controlling what they do. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I feel like there's, you know, there's ways to talk about it without going straight to child abuse and. Yeah. I think that's sort of the same thing with transition, although, you know, we can all agree that, you know, telling a child that they can be the opposite sex, I think that is child abuse. Um, But I think we have to be careful about when we say those words. Child abuse, mutilation, really loaded terms, yeah. And particularly, like, if you think about Texas, for example, where they're saying that transitioning children is child abuse and, you know, child protective services are going to get involved. These are people that are going by what their doctors told them. So it's, it becomes confusing for everyone, I think. Well, yeah, the, the reform has to happen on multiple levels. But if, if, if you bring up child protective services advocating for non-affirmative care, you also have to bring up the fact that at least in California and more liberal places, child protective services will be called on parents who don't affirm too. So involving the law in a matter of psychology and um, medical intervention is very dangerous it's very it's very complex and it can be weaponized just depending on you know what the law or the people who are writing and interpreting the laws their biases so it should be a last resort kind of thing i think but uh, that's a huge conversation because i know that the florida florida also has uh issued a statement a couple weeks ago that they're 
going to suspend uh, gender-affirming care for, for uh, teens. Which is different than that's that's the medical. That's not necessarily like the enforcement getting involved. So far as I know, which is a different issue. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the part I'm concerned about as well. Is sort of how are we gonna enforce things? But you know, when you think about enforcement, even just sort of when you think about vaccines, for example, um, when you make something mandatory and someone doesn't understand why it's mandatory, um, I think it opens up the the stage for a lot of like trauma basically mm. so you know if you if you tell if you've been telling a child for so long that they can transition and then you suddenly tell them they can't i can understand why they would suddenly become extremely upset to the point of like suicidal ideation for example and um i'm trying to make a parallel between sort of forcing people to take certain uh, medical to go a certain direction with their medical um, care um, and I, I feel I I feel like there's sort of uh, a word? way to understand uh, through metaphor to kind of understand uh, yeah let's let's slow down let's think things through this isn't a fight we're just trying to figure out the best way to um, safeguard and facilitate good lives for everyone yeah so you know instead of enforcing things instead of you know we just we need to talk about it <laughs> um and that that's just sort of i think where people need to go with activism in general is a lot of people are sort of jumping to you know what's the way that we can get this done the fastest and i don't think getting it done the fastest is necessarily the right way to go then I know people are, are doing that by they're, they're using the same sort of tactics that, you know, the trans rights activists use emotional manipulation by saying, oh, if they don't, if they don't get transition as soon as possible, they're going to kill themselves, blah, blah, blah. And then the flip side is people on quote unquote, my side will say, oh, you know, you're teaching children gender identity in school, you're a groomer, blah, blah, blah. And I, I feel like that's sort of the same emotional manipulation to try and make something stop as soon as possible or get something that you want as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I just don't think it's the direction that we need to go and we need to go in a direction where everybody understands. So we're, uh, I don't, I don't know if we're going to get there, but well, a little bit at a time. Uh, some, some people somewhere will start to understand a little bit more and then they can just put one little feather in your cap. If that's the right phrase. Yeah. For that. So you you just desisted from testosterone um, due to uh, your skin, uh, your epidermis. Um, what was it like to go off of that? Did, uh, did things feel better, feel worse? And uh, was it just like, okay, well, I don't have to do that anymore? It was probably mostly like, oh, I don't have to do that anymore. Um, I, I would say the main reason was probably... Um, the acne but like the other parts were uh, i've talked about before but um one of them was that i just couldn't force myself to keep doing the the injection every i had to do it every two weeks so wow. um that 14th day would come and i was supposed to do a shot of testosterone that day and i would be like Ugh, i don't want to do it today i'll just do it tomorrow and then 
that would continue until I was taking my doses like every three weeks apart instead of every two weeks. And there was a part of me that thought, you know, this is probably not, not a good idea to not take the drugs that I've been prescribed at the correct intervals. So maybe I should stop taking them. So that was another sort of, I guess, reason to come off. But when I, when I came off of it, um, I don't know. I, I feel like I don't think there was much of a difference almost except that my period came back. So did you suffer any, or did your, um, female uh, system, um, react negatively or, uh, to testosterone or, uh, did you suffer any consequences in that? It can be extreme. It can just, nothing really changes. Um, I don't think I felt anything personally. Uh, I do know that a lot of people dealt with like atrophy, um, maybe part of it was because, you know, I, I just wasn't very sexually active. Maybe I didn't notice anything. Um, but even like day to day, I didn't notice anything. I've, I've since had a hysterectomy, unfortunately. So Hmm. it's just a non-functional system now, but, um, yeah, no, I don't, I can't think of anything personally. And then you also mentioned that your, uh, the way that you thought uh, had to change. It wasn't just about desisting from the testosterone. You still identified as a trans male or as a man, um, and your thinking had to change over the course of time. So in those, what you said, four or five years when you were not on testosterone, but you were trans identified, what was your um, your entry, your connection to the community, trans community, or to the identity, or how did you end up use that identity to plug in the world? And how did that end up changing over time? Um, I would first say that I, when I detransit, not when I, not detransition, but when I went off of testosterone, I started identifying as non-binary instead okay. of as male, but um, I still pass as male. I don't think I look like I'm looking at myself right now and I don't think I look male, but like out in the world, as it turns out, most people think I'm male. Maybe it's the voice, um, or maybe it's because like I don't nece- I don't normally dress overly femininely or, or whatever. But um, that was still my experience in those years after I went off of testosterone. Is I just kept being sort of red as male, and I had shorter hair then too. So, um, but uh, in terms of sort of that identity, I guess. Part of it was part of it was useful to me when I was in like um, autistic self advocacy. So having the label of being trans, being like a trans autistic person, I think was useful to me in that space. They give you an edge. Yeah, I would say so. Like. Um, it was, it was very much like an identitarian type of place where everyone is like, oh, well, I, I'm a person of color I'm di- and disabled because, you know, everyone in autistic community is disabled and disabled and this and this and this. And so having sort of an extra, mm-hmm. especially, yeah. especially in this sort of that sort of community where it was very, very, very identitarian where, you know, the more you know, the, the more labels you have, the more likely you are, it is that you people are going to take you seriously, that sort of thing. 
Um, or, or you have more cards to shut other people down because standpoint epistemology, um, kind of, you're always jockeying and divvying up authority based on this characteristic. It's just the money, uh, the social status, uh, money in a way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So did, it was useful uh, to me in that sense. I, yeah. Did over time, I'm sorry to go here, but did, uh, are there like, I just wonder if like, there's like, it's kind of like an economic system. I'm just thinking of the money metaphor, but it is kind of a money. It's a credit. And I wonder if there's inflation and deflation over time, these different identities shift in communities, depending on, you know, the hot topic. It's like, okay, we're going to focus on this disability. Or we're going to focus on racism right now because it's a hot topic in the world. And so that becomes inflated and, and it has more cred. And then it kind of lowers in importance uh, over time. I just wonder if anybody's studying that. It's a good question. Cause I'm, I'm sure it is like, um, in my experience in activism, I would say that, you know, being trans has, for example, when I first transitioned to now, I think being trans is probably worth more than certain other, um, I, I won't name any, cause I don't know which ones that it's more important than, but it seems to be it's treated as the the singular most marginalized and you know the the most um oppressed and yeah yeah basically and, the most yeah. oppressed so yeah so it was useful during those those periods of time um but i think maybe even the detransition almost came about because I realized that it didn't matter how many identities I had that, you know, people were still going to not listen to me if they could find a way to not listen to me. Um, um, Hmm. Yeah. That that critical thinking really uh, disrupted you and sent you that one class kind of sent you on a, a skeptical quest to really examine assumptions and and also start to examine yourself then yeah and one of the things was that like i started forming an interest in like uh it was um it's an intervention that helps uh autistic people learn how to write to communicate so like pointing to letters on like a letter board sort of thing and there's not a lot of evidence for that, but it does seem like it's helping a lot of people. So I sort of like went into like a deep dive and looking at evidence. And I, I think this is one of the reasons that I started looking at critical thinking is because I wanted to make arguments for this particular intervention that made sense sort of thing. Like I wanted to know what counts as credible evidence, what counts as um you know, peer reviewed is better than not peer reviewed and a systematic review is better than a single study. So like I looked into that, um, I went in, I had a research methods class in like addition to the critical thinking. So all of these things sort of came together. And um, I think sort of the interest in that is really what sort of brought up um, starting to have critical thinking. And when I started thinking in that way i also realized that the the community that i was part of didn't support critical thinking it's it only supported thinking in a specific way it supported an ideology um 
And I think that's sort of just what sent me on that path because from there I started um, following people that were criticizing cancel culture. So not specifically within like the uh, autistic community where I had all these examples of cancel culture happening, but like just sort of greater culture, especially like leftists. I was listening to leftists talk about um, cancel culture because it just seemed like there weren't very many leftists talking about cancel culture and how to deal with it. Sorry about my cat. Um, Does your cat need uh, a biscuit? No, she just wants to come up (laughs) and, uh, put her tail all over the camera oh my apologies it's all good but um where was i anyway so um you started to look outside of your community at this cancel culture phenomena and i i i'm gonna i'm intimating that you come across some problematic thinkers um the people that i like started listening to yeah they were they were canceled themselves. So, you know, these are are people that were canceled themselves. Um, And I tried to actually, I tried to introduce those people to people within like, for for example, within autism advocacy that I wanted, that I thought would be open to this and be like, Hey, this is happening to you. You're being canceled. How are we going to fix this? Here's an idea of how to fix this. You know, let's uh, um, instead of, you know, defending ourselves against them all the time, then why don't we just ignore them when they're making arguments that aren't supported by any evidence or, you know, let's not treat the people that we disagree with in this way. You know, that that's sort of the, the thing that I've seen the most in activism is that we'll talk about how mean it is or how problematic it is that certain people are treating us in a certain way, suppressing our ability to speak and so on. And then we do that to everyone else in the same group as us. So, um, Hmm. yeah, so they were, they were problematic people that I was apparently following, but, um, they were describing something that I was experiencing and that really did help me come out of it. And the other thing that helped me sort of come out of, thinking in a rigid way like that was I lived with someone who um, detransitioned six months before me. So um, this was a friend of mine. We lived together for three or four years. um, And six months before me, he decided to detransition. And the whole time he had never been really into social justice. So he came to it from like a different direction than I did. And um, so we had a lot of discussions where we weren't really agreeing with each other. And I think all of those discussions and arguments and not all of them ended well, but um, it helped me learn how to sort of control myself around someone that doesn't agree with me on absolutely everything. (laughs) And um, when he detransitioned, he was, he did try and have, discussions with me about like uh abigail shire's irreversible damage for example he would talk about that and i wouldn't want i wouldn't want to get into it basically so um or he tried to show me the dtrans subreddit and i refused to read anything there so you can tell where my mind was at those 
periods of time where I wouldn't even look at information that would have challenged me. Um, so I think being around someone that I trusted and that I, you know, gained um, respect for over a whole period of time really helped me to be able to open up in that way. Um, it's unfortunate. I just feel like anyone else who knows me, um, people who used to be my friends would have just said that this guy radicalized me basically. So, which I think is sad because, um, I don't think he radicalized me. I think that he helped me sort of see what was true versus what was ideological kind of thing. Hmm. Um, and, um, what yeah, was no. the what was kind of the first steps towards detransitioning then ideologically um i would say the first step anything that for me that went sort of towards detransition is um i was still in in autism advocacy in i'm going to say this was like june 2020 um jk rowling posted something about how autistic girls were more likely to transition and that she was concerned about autistic girls. And so at this point in time, I was still very, very much involved in autism self-advocacy. And on Twitter, everyone around me was making this hashtag that was something like um, autistic, not confused, or we're not confused or something like that. And somewhere in the back of my mind, there was a part of me thinking, I don't think I would have transitioned if I had been diagnosed with autism earlier. So maybe I was confused and I don't agree with this hashtag. I think actually maybe JK Rowling has like a little bit of truth to her there. And I think that is when it started. I think that was the first, cause I, I posted something on Facebook. So I, I have the, the record there knowing that in that point in time, I said out loud, I wouldn't have transitioned if I had been diagnosed sooner. Um, and I think that's sort of what had to be, on that path. And that was probably a couple months after my friend started detransitioning. So it was clearly on my mind, even though I wasn't like actively looking up mm -hmm. um, other people's opinions and sort of um, other ideas that I had been afraid to look up before. But um, the day that I transitioned, I looked at everything. So like I had one night where I told my friend, you know, you know, even if I did detransition, would women even still want me to be in their spaces with them? Blah, blah, blah. And um, that was the night that I was basically like, yeah, I'm going to try and change. I'm going to change all my ID back. I'm probably going to try and pass as a woman again. We'll see what happens. And that night I read, I read everything like that week. I read irreversible damage that night. I was on the detrans subreddit reading things Um I was looking for like just essays that other detransitioners had written. I read, I read everything in like the first week. So it was sort of like making up for all that time where I had refused to um, listen to anything that my friend had said. And like looking back on that, that probably really sucked for my friend who was going through this mm. and me refusing to like engage with him over and over on it. Yeah, so. it, it could have been very beneficial for him to to have somebody resisting him so that he would have to really think through that stuff you, you don't know it could have been you could have been 
giving him a gift without realizing it. Could be. I hope so. <laughs> but yeah, um, I think that that was sort of where it started was um, having it happen in my house because we were living together. So watching him, he cut his hair, started, um, he stopped taking estrogen and started taking testosterone. So he was growing facial hair again for the first time in eight years and stuff like that. So that was all happening in my house. So even though I wasn't reading anything about it, it was this idea that after eight years, someone could make a mistake. So he, he was had transitioned for eight years and I transitioned for 10. So um, it's hard. It's a lot harder to ignore when it's just happening right in front of you. So did you have an adverse reaction to that? Did you uh, block him out or uh, take out frustration? Did, did he begin to erode your safety and your identity um, by watching his erode? Did that cause you some instability in your own self? Um, I don't know if it caused instability. Like it was definitely breaking down barriers. So like my, those almost thought barriers, the cognitive dissonance was going away. I think that was happening, but, um, other, otherwise not really, like, I don't know. It's hard for me to think of it in that way, just because I've always felt really, really safe around this particular person. So to feel like unsafe around him. I don't, I don't think that happened. It was more, I could imagine that somebody would be kind of defensive, uh, being exposed to that. Um, if I had known him for less amount of time, maybe, or if I was closer to the beginning of my transition, I think it would have been more difficult, Mm -hmm. but at this point, you know, I, it was 10 years in and yeah, I don't, I don't think that, uh, not really in that sense. And did detransition, um, returning to identifying just as a female, did that feel like a relief? Uh, did it feel like a homecoming? Well, how, how did that feel like generally? I think the word homecoming is interesting because I used that same, I used the same term when I was writing recently and I was thinking about how I wanted it to become a, be a homecoming, but you know, the, the body that I'm accepting now isn't the same one that it was when I started transitioning. So am I coming, I'm not really coming home to something. I'm having to process what I have now in a new different way sort of thing. So like, I'm not, I don't get the opportunity to accept my breasts ever because I don't have them anymore. So I don't, I don't have the opportunity to get used to having a period because I don't have one anymore. And, you know, I don't, I don't have the opportunities to accept my body, which I I feel like that's sort of what a homecoming might entail. Just sort of like coming home to yourself and accepting your body and, you know, what I would have done, what I wish I would have done instead of transitioning, basically, I don't, I'm never going to have the opportunity to do that. So in that sense, it wasn't really a homecoming, but in another sense, and I've heard this from multiple people now, multiple detransition people have told me that after detransitioning, it almost feels like someone someone you used to be has awakened and 
you're like, it's, it's almost like a dissociative identity or something where part of you went away and a different version of you sort of took over during the period that you were transitioned. And um, when I detransitioned, it was almost like that person that I had tucked away came back. So, yeah. Was that person uh, ticked off or? Uh. Um, kind of. <laughs> Maybe less ticked off and more like upset at this time. But, um, you How know. did you process that um, uh, if you had to deal with regret or despair uh, at your own choices? How did you process that? How have you been processing that? It's it's ongoing. It's um so it's been a year and a half, I think. And you know, there there are days the the first six months after the detransition were the hardest. So in the first six months, the thing that bothered me the most was the hysterectomy. So um I had the hysterectomy in 2018, one year after I was diagnosed with autism and ADHD and so on. Um, and the reason I had it done is because by that time, the provincial insurance in where I live is covering it. And I think that if they weren't covering it, I would never would have gotten it because I never would have been able to pay for it. So, um, it felt like, um, a very impulsive choice on my part, especially if you looked at my history, you, you wouldn't find like, I wasn't that person that grew up not wanting to have children. I was a person that grew up wanting to have children that wanted to get pregnant and had like a list of all the names that I was going to name my children. And I don't know what happened in the years that I transitioned, but for whatever reason, um, I ended up pursuing the hysterectomy. So um, in the first six months after detransition, that was what I was processing was the fact that I'm now infertile. Um, I still have ovaries. So like in, in a world where I have thousands and thousands of dollars and then nothing unethical would happen, I could still have a child, but um, it's probably not going to happen. But um, in, so in the first six months post detransition, every time I saw a child interacting with a parent, I started crying. Um, I had days where I just sort of went and lay on my bed and cried for a long time. Um, I went, I, I called up my doctor and I told her, you know, I want to, I want to see a fertility clinic. And this was, that was the first time I told her I detransitioned basically was, um, basically telling her that I want to get pregnant now. And, you know, I had a surgery that makes me not be able to have pre be pregnant ever. And, um, I don't know. She, she didn't even, she didn't even take that as like, she didn't, I don't know. My, my, I don't think my doctors are ever going to sound sorry, but you know, they didn't, she didn't seem to feel bad about it or in, in any, any way. It was just sort of, Oh, okay. You, you would have gotten pregnant if you didn't have a hysterectomy. Okay. And I don't know. They, they, they made it very neutral. Um, but yeah, so the six months after that were really difficult and like, I don't know, Christmas last year, my parents were like taking pictures of like my nieces and nephews and I had to leave the room because I was crying. Cause I was like, there's a part of me being like, I'll never give my nieces and nephews any cousins 
or, you know, um, my parents will never see me have children or anyway. So the being, and I, and I honestly, it's probably because I'm in my thirties and, you know, that's the whole biological clock ticking thing. Um, I did all the research and found out that like every, every year after the age of like 34, 35, you have less and less, there's less and less likely that you could have children. So I I think that's why it all came up now. It's all coming up. And that, I think that's why it's the big thing for me is because Mm -hmm. I'm in my thirties. But so that, that was the most thing, the thing that was the most difficult to process was the infertility. Um, I think um, with, with other things, like for example, my breasts, I've, I've had, I had the mastectomy 10 years ago. So it's almost like I've sort of been able to deal with it at this point. Yeah. You okay? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You hit me pretty hard. Um... I know. And I, I know I, I, I sit here talking about it and I'm not getting emotional, but I, it is, it is emotional behind the scenes. I know I get emotional behind the scenes I, for whatever reason, when I'm talking to people, I can just be like, yep. Ha, ha, ha. So <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't get, you're a trained, you're though. a trained advocate at this point. You know how to work the room. Yeah. Um, so, um, the scene, the D-trans scene, um, there's a lot of developments. I, I'm just now realizing, um, and this is not about me. It's just, I, I'm just now realizing the pattern of my D-trans interviews is that there's so many people that have been detransitioning in the last two years. And I'm just kind of doing the math. I'm like, this is going to be a big community there's a lot of resources. There's a lot of personalities. There's a lot of comorbidities. Um, and it's a landscape that's ripe or uh, in need of infrastructure for support and uh, barriers and kind of codes of conduct so that different types of people that are going through detransition don't trigger each other, for lack of a better word, or um, exacerbate um uh, unhealthy behaviors or, or, or end up harming each other or, or, um, not really being helpful to each other. So, um, I'm just, I'm, I'm beginning to be concerned on, on how we can strategize and we, I don't, it's not, I'm not responsible for it, but, um, I'm, I'm keen to that and I'm seeing, um, just a need and I'm wondering, um, what you're saying and, um, where you think, cause I, I think you sound like somebody who would be an expert on organizing the infrastructure for something like this with, uh, just your life experience and stuff like that. Um, so I think that you probably have a lot to offer by way of suggestion or by just sense, sen- uh, sensing what, where the field's at and where it needs to go or what, what, where people should be paying attention, putting their attention, where they should not be putting their attention. Um, yeah. Um, I, I wish I knew more, first of all, to be like more effective in terms of organizing. But because um, right now, personally, I'm feeling very... Um, what's the word? 
there's there's a lot of different detrans groups, but it feels like not all of us are in the same group. So like detrans voices and post trans are both are both mainly female detransitioners. I think post trans is specifically female detransitioners. Detrans is that a voices. subreddit? No, they're both um they're like nonprofit groups almost. Okay. Um I don't know if they're technically nonprofit groups, but they're they're groups, they have websites, they put out some material. Um so like one part of it is the lack of involvement of male detransitioners, and that's not necessarily their fault. Um even so even like my friend that detransitioned um does not want any involvement in anything public facing, basically. Um so he's not he's not gonna he's not gonna say anything. Um, um But um and if this is improper you don't have to say it, but we're speaking about him anonymously. I I'm just wondering, um does he just if he's a uh case study, what would he need if not to be public? Like still available uh, groups uh, or talking therapy or is he just kind of going his own way at this point? Because I'm sure that there's plenty of men specifically who'll uh, be fine doing that or um, yeah. still needs some sort of resource. Yes. And like, uh, I don't know if he's actually gotten into, I know there's a D-Trans men's discord that they recently put together. I don't know if he's in that yet. I did tell him about it and he said, yeah, that that is the only thing I'm still interested in is like, okay just a support group kind yeah of thing. being yeah. with other people that have gone through the same thing but otherwise he doesn't want to talk about it yeah. um but yeah and I, I think part of the reason and there's like a lot of reasons that are that men probably aren't involved but i think one of the reasons is it's a little i think it's a little easier for them to sort of integrate back in if they haven't had specifically if they haven't had genital surgery but um and it's because testosterone is such a strong, strong drug is that people who were trans women that detransition, I think they have less of a time, less of a hard time passing, not necessarily, but less of a hard time. They, they start to pass as men pretty quickly as, mm. and uh, the opposite isn't really true. And I, I think the, th- the same thing is true for transition in general. If you grew up on testosterone or if you had testosterone in your system for a long period of time, you're always going to seem more masculine. Mm-hmm. So I think when you trans women come out of it, we have a lot of us have the voice and that's never going away. Um, I did hear that there are surgeries for it, but I don't, uh, there's, I don't want to push surgeries for detransition people. Like mm-hmm. we, we don't want like another more people telling you that surgery is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, my friend that I mentioned is getting surgery to have his breast removed, but um you know, um, I don't think I'm going to ever do reconstruction, for example, but, um, yeah, in, in terms of like where, where to go with detransitioner, it's, it's very obvious that the group of people who are detransitioning and like the people who are online is a very, very, um, there's just so many, so many people coming from so many different angles now, which I think is a good thing. Um, so that's a good direction for us to go. And I, I heard, I, I got the impression that several years ago, it was very, very mostly women and mostly radical feminists 
that's what it sounded to me is that there was a very, very strong radical feminist detransitioner group. And it seems like we sort of, um, diluted that. Yeah, yeah. It's, they're still there, but, um, I think it's important to have just all of those different perspectives. So I think we're, we're going in a good direction in that sense. Do you, do you have a ideological home, uh, uh, at this point? I would say I'm probably politically hopeless at this point. Yeah. Um, a lot of it, I feel like I would have called myself a feminist if it weren't for the fact that I was around radical feminists all the time on Twitter. So like, I would call myself a feminist in that I know that there was historical oppression against women and I can trace that back and I acknowledge that. And I think that it still has an effect on how people are treated today, but also you know, I don't think that <laughs> me me saying that I don't think that we should be able to abuse men for having been part of that. A lot of people would just get like, I feel like people would say that I'm not a feminist if I police women's language, for example, towards their oppressors. And um, I will do that. <laughs> I will police your language. I will say, <laughs> I, I will say that um, I don't care if you think you're an oppressor or an oppressed person. You don't get to be mean to other people. That's really sort of the baseline. So yeah, yeah. The, the, it's 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 really um, it it if if you hold by the principles of critical thinking and civility, that kind of makes it problematic to be in too many activist groups because those two things interrupt the will to power. Those two things um, interrupt the, and, and slow down the process of achievement and goal, um, which are good things um, because then you actually know if what you want is what you actually want. Um, and then also uh, compromising and uh, working together with other people and making friends. Yeah. Um, it's a good healthy thing um it's sort of the frustrating part of activism is that i start making friends with people and then sometimes i don't like how they go about their activism so i feel like i still like them as people but i can't follow them on twitter or i can't be involved in their activism just because uh it just rubs me the wrong way but like mm -hmm. I don't know. That's, that's always been sort of a, a difficult thing in, in activism for me is sort of like finding people that um, do rub you the right way. But like <laughs> at the same time, um, I don't know. Cause you know, I, I want to have people who have all different opinions. I want to have friends that all have different opinions, but I also don't want them to be mean people. I don't know. It's, it's it's sort of difficult to try and, and find that, um, especially when a lot of them are trying to justify why they're allowed to be mean. So that part is difficult to sort of square. Yeah, it, yeah accepting people as they are is uh, uh, a human achievement, an achievement of humanity, actually. Uh, it doesn't come easy, um, especially to actually hold a moral code and then allow people to, you know... Uh, obey a different one um or go about things in a different ways yeah 
so basically like for me i've just sort of there's I, I think there's like a certain threshold of amount of uh, i allow you you can be this mean and i'll be like <laughs> okay you know but then if you sort of hit the threshold and then you're too mean for too long then i'm just like eh. no hmm. maybe maybe not you know the other part is you know if you're mean to people that you don't agree with um this is something you you learn as part of like deconstructing cancel culture if you're around people that are really really mean to the people that you don't agree with all the time you have to remember there's always something in the back of your head going that could be you as soon as you disagree with this person then they'll turn on you and, and treat you the exact same way so mm-hmm. i think that's part of it also is to be cautious you don't want to be treated that same way so you got a book and fits and starts and you have Hopefully. a mountain of writing archived thankfully you should probably make a, a hard copy of that at some point it sounds like you have the makings of a lot of work ahead of you um where, where are your avenues right now where are you at right now i see you on twitter um and are there other groups that uh you're involved in or that you advocate for and name at this point um i do have my blog some nuance please some nuance please yeah that's my my sub stack <laughs> okay um it's funny because i've heard people saying uh people say they want nuance but they actually don't want nuance but i do want nuance so uh it's hard to sort of convince people i want the right kind of nuance but um yeah. that in I, I think that name even some, some nuance please was really just it wasn't even just towards everyone else it was also towards myself mm-hmm so reminding of myself, but yeah, so I have the Substack. That's what it is. It's on Substack. Um, and I have Twitter. Um, I would say that I'm probably consider myself a member of gender dysphoria Alliance. So I, I agree with what they're trying to accomplish and we'll probably be involved in some of their things coming forward. Um, there's not really anything else. There's actually, I closed my DMs recently because I wanted to take a break. It was a good break time. Yeah. Uh, I chose to do this interview just for like, it's my, for myself, basically. <laughs> it's sort of like a personal, a personal goal, get interviewed by Benjamin Boyce. So. <laughs> I'm so honored. <laughs> This, this is this is a true thing, and I think I've told people this. I okay. So after the D-Trans Awareness Day webinar, I was with several other people. Um, I think it was three or four of them had already been interviewed by you, and then me and Robin were in there, and Robin was about to get his interview. Also, you you messaged him that day, and we were all just talking about it, and I was just like, so exciting, get to be on Benjamin Voice. Oh no, I'm a rite of passage. <laughs> But no, when, when I told I told them in this that I told them sometime last year I I opened my DMs because you followed me and I wasn't following you back at that time I am now but at that time um, I was like I, I opened them specifically because I was hoping you would ask me so yeah <laughs> you're gonna make you're gonna make me tear up sick time um, it, it was not I'm not trying to be you know in a teary Sadistic. way it was sort of a you know, you, you got all of the people that that I personally admire and um, 
you know, I obviously I personally admire you for going in, into that and um, going into this topic. So, yeah. Okay, I need to get it off of me. I need to get the eyes off me. Um, okay. I I I commend you for uh, speaking out and also just being aware, taking breaks and uh, and and setting limits to yourself. I, I feel I have a I have a sense that you have a lot to contribute in a lot of different ways, and it doesn't have to be as an advocate or an activist. Um, so hopefully, hopefully the book finishes. That that's what my plan is. The plan is finish the book. Um, in my mind, there's only a finite amount of things to say about detransition. Um, for me, I mean, you know, cause there could be, for me, there's, you know, talking about how bullying came into it and talking about how being a woman came into it and talking about how being autistic came into it. So I have all those things. And then, you know, maybe a different detransitioner could talk about how being, how having OCD came into it or talking about how being a male came into it or talking about how, um, you know, how they processed feminism on Tumblr, stuff like that. So there's a lot of things to talk about, but there's only so much that I can talk about specifically. Uh, And I feel like if I finish the book, it'll be sort of like, my my magnum opus in some way and then maybe i can move on to something else i don't know what i'm going to move on to but do you have any ideas in my head in my head i would love to get away from any type of advocacy and activism um what's that one canadian game where they rub the ice while something slides on it (laughs) curling yeah i could i could go into curling option i I haven't seen curling around here i have seen cornhole around here (laughs) apparently (laughs) apparently there's just like a big cornhole league in this area which i didn't know about (laughs) and i have thought about it there's a part of me going "Eh, i could get good good at cornhole maybe (laughs) so uh, yeah i want to i want to get into something that's not advocacy just hobby outside even just writing fiction novels or something anything but Mm. um I wouldn't have guessed this of me five years ago. Five years ago, I would have been like, I'm going to be in activism forever, trying to change the world forever. And now I'm like, in five years, if everything went well for me, I would like to have a family and not be thinking about activism ever again. So we'll see what happens, I guess. Yeah, there should be... um there should be some sort of retirement plan for activists, you know, for, for all, for them and for the world, you know, it's like, okay, you did your 20, you did your tour, you did your two tours. Now, now go open a brewery and get out of our hair. I, I I feel like it's similar. I feel feel similar, similar in that, like, I feel like I I did my debt to the world, even, even though I don't think it was necessarily a good, I don't think it was necessarily all good. (laughs) especially the whole time that I was, you know, advocating for, for transition and stuff like that. Now I'm looking back on that being like, Oh, that was actually a bad thing. I didn't know. But, you know, I spent 10 years trying to make the world better in my early twenties and late twenties. And now I'm in my early thirties and Hmm. time to retire. I don't have, I don't have the strength for it anymore. And there are always new 20 year olds that are 
yeah. going to pop up and take yeah. over. So eternal September. And, you know, the same thing for detransition, I think. Um, there's going to be more detransitioners that pop up. And when they pop up, then it's their time and it's my time to go and uh, mm. retire. So, yeah. Um, well, Michelle, we should enter, uh, we should end the uh, recorded section of our time together. Um, thank you for uh, sharing and uh, exposing uh, yourself and what you've seen. And uh, I will link to your products in the description and, but not to the extent where people can look at your ancient uh, live journal um, wolf LARPing stuff. <laughs> maybe, maybe they'll find you that somehow, but maybe they could stay hidden. I almost, I almost want to post some of it now. Cause I, <laughs> I'm, I'm a hundred percent sure that there's something I've got like text like like little notepad files basically where i've like copied and pasted old things that i've written, <laughs> written into and I'm, I'm sure there's something and right after we finish this i'm going to track it down i'm sure of it. yeah yeah so <laughs> I, I i do recommend you get into literature I, I have a sense that you are a natural born writer and going in the direction of even a young adult novel um might just open you up to something fabulous i, I hope i go in that direction yeah thank you <laughs> You mind saying goodbye to everyone at home? Yeah. Goodbye, everyone at home. <laughs>